in chapter 12, uh, the entirety of chapter 12, as we've noticed, has been a series of confrontations with Jesus and Pharisees, right? Um, three weeks ago when we got into chapter 12, we saw that the conflict was over Jesus' disciples <clears throat> picking and eating heads of grain on the Sabbath, following a Sabbath service. Uh, two weeks ago, the Pharisees tried to uh, get Jesus to violate the Sabbath regulations again by having him interact with a, a man that was in need of great compassion and healed this man with the withered hand. And then last week, as the continued conversation and dialogue with Jesus and these Pharisees continued, we see that on the Sabbath, Jesus again has great compassion to many people who are oppressed. There was one demon-possessed man who was both mute and, and uh, blind, and, and Jesus healed him. And while Jesus was walking away from the conversation that he was having with those Pharisees, uh, we saw that there was a large number of people that followed with him, and it said that many of those Jesus healed. So the entirety of chapter 12 <clears throat> has been this ongoing confrontation with Jesus and these Pharisees. And on the occasion today, uh, we're going to see the title right here. You can kind of see it, the scribes. The scribes are going to get introduced into this conversation. The scribes are going to want more proof. That's just kind of a simple way of saying the scribes are going to be asking Jesus to do something for a very unique and particular purpose. So in our message today, Jesus is still dealing with this ongoing confrontation with the Pharisees um, with regard to the breaking of Sabbath, and they're trying to find a way to trap him in order to convict him so that they might kill him. Here's a simple outline for today's message. I'm going to have about a minute and a half on each one of these, so you need to listen really quickly. The first thing we're going to see in verse 38 is the request for more proof of his messiahship. Secondly, we're going to see uh, Jesus have a response to this request, and that gets broken down into three parts. In verses 39 through 41, he's going to tell of a sign, the sign of Jonah is going to be the only sign that they're going to, that they're going to get. Secondly, he talks about the queen of the south coming and what she did. And then lastly, there's this very unique, um, enigmatic teaching that Jesus does in verses 43 through 45, dealing with uh, the, the, the idea of an unclean spirit being cast out, demons being cast out, which he's just previously had done, right? We've seen that he just, just before this, he uh, cast a demon out of this man who was blind and mute, and they accused him of doing his powers by the, uh, the his, these miracles by the power of Satan, which led to our discussion last week on the unpardonable sin. So let's continue in this conversation because in, in this context, there's a little bit of a change. And notice what happens here in verse 38 which deals with the request for more proof. In, in 1238, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign <clears throat> from you. So what we have introduced now is this, this, con this uh, combination where Matthew on a, a few occasions throughout his gospel has this right here, scribes and Pharisees, and he brings these together. In the conversation thus far with Jesus, it's always been about the Pharisees. The Pharisees accused him of this. The Pharisees accused him of that. 
Well, now we see that Matthew's indicating that the scribes have shown up, which tells us that more than likely these Pharisees, um, having had this, uh, the ongoing dialogue that they, that they have had with Jesus, and then Jesus, in essence, uh, pronouncing on them the fact that they've committed this unpardonable sin and are damned to hell forever because of that, it seems perhaps that those Pharisees went and sought out the legal experts, which would be the scribes. These scribes in this culture had to be at a minimal 30 years of age, they had, had to have spent many years of intensive study in the Hebrew texts. Um, you might think of the scribes as we might think today as uh, like seminary professors, people who have committed their lives to the very deep study of, of scriptures. But not only did that, did they do that, the scribes um, also um, were very familiar and had to be experts on the rabbinic traditions. And so the Talmud, we talked about the Talmud, the 24 chapters of S Sabbath regulations. They had to be experts in the Talmud as well because they had to give interpretive um, declarations about both the scriptures and the Talmud. The scribes were known, if you will, as the supreme interpreters and teachers within the nation of Israel. John MacArthur in his commentary said this about these scribes. He says they were the authorized interpretive scholars and lawyers of Judaism and were generally held in great honor. And while most of these scribes uh, were also Pharisees, uh, not all Pharisees were scribes. There were some scribes that were of the Sadducean uh, uh, group as well, but scribes nonetheless were the scholars, the, if you will, like the elite intelligent force uh, within Israel in that day. And it seems this is why Matthew um, has now brought uh, into this conversation the recognition that these Pharisees that had been originally dealing with Jesus, they've now gone to the scribes and they said, hey, we need some help. Can you come with us and can you help us in this conversation that we've had with this man named Jesus? And there's no doubt in my mind that they would have uh, filled the scribes in on what has been previously happening earlier in the day from the grain field to the healing of the man with the withered hand, to the casting out of the demon that was uh, mute and, and deaf. I'm sure that the scribes had filled them in, and also of the pronouncements that Jesus had made against them, that blasphemy against the Spirit of God was an unforgivable sin. So they may per perhaps been thinking, well, let's go get the legal experts in the law to find out if what this guy is saying is so. And having conferred Together in these ways, regarding these previous activities, we see again here in verse 38 that they've made a request. The scribes, inserted scribes and Pharisees said to him, and here's the request, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Um, it may not seem like it when you just kind of read the text. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you, but... This is a very challenging statement to interpret and to understand contextually. What do they mean by wanting to see a sign? Um, when you just go back to the, the Samayon in, in Greek, it's just an event which is regarded as having some special meaning, a sign. But it has to be contextualized. It could be a miraculous sign. Oftentimes it was a, a sign that had future um, pending events on it, so more of like a prophetic kind of a sign. There were many different contexts in which signs could um, be a thing. And so in this context particularly, what were they specifically asking for? Now, again, if you, if you 
keep in mind everything we've talked about thus far this morning, um, Jesus had, on this Sabbath day, he has performed how many miraculous signs already? Pro potentially hundreds. The healing of the withered hand, it said many followed and w went after him, and he said he healed all of them. And then the demon-possessed man and who was blind and mute, he cast out the, the demonic spirit, and the man was healed instantaneously. So, show us a sign. Well, which of the signs that I've already produced for you throughout the course of this day did you have problems understanding? Which one of those? And so it makes it a very difficult um, request in trying to get to the heart <clears throat> of what these scribes perhaps are doing here. And it seems, I'm going to, before I get to the answer, and it seems that they start off with a little bit of um, coyness, if that's, that's not the right way to say it. They're a little coy in their approach to Jesus. The teacher, which they never would have called anybody outside of the Pharisaic class or even amongst the scribes themselves, they would have never looked at somebody outside of that caste or class and referred to them in such endearing terms as teacher. Uh, we want to see something from you. So it seems that these scribes have, in conversation with the Pharisees, said, let us go to him and let's do something by which is demanding of him to do something greater than anything he's done heretofore. And by doing this, what does it do to the crowd that's been watching them? You remember what happened to the crowd? The crowd said, could this be the son of David? The crowd's interest in everything that Jesus was doing was starting to be heightened. And that's when the Pharisees jumped in real fast. and They went, no, no, no. And they put the kibosh on that and said, he does his miracles by the power of Satan, right? So these scribes are stepping in. And it's almost like they're wanting the crowd to, to make this observation that we, you're the experts in the law, we, the seminary professors of your culture, we, the most respected of the religious leadership in your day, are letting you know that everything that he's done heretofore on this day doesn't measure up to the signs of the Messiah. And who should, who should know? Of all the people that you've ever known in your entire lives, who, who should know and who would you respect to know the answer to this question? It would be the scribes. These were the legal experts of the day. They, they spent their lives studying Torah and the traditions. So if anybody was going to know, it would be the scribes. And when the scribes step in and say, we want to see a sign from you, and it's in essence their way of saying to the crowd primarily, Everything this man has done on this day heretofore is not one of the signs of the Messiah. Let's put him on the spot and say, hey, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What you've done th thus far isn't going to cut the mustard. And so then Jesus responds in a very appropriate way. Verse 39. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, 
aside from the essence and where Jesus is going contextually with this, uh, more on the lines of um, what we might call um, affirming the, 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 the literal nature of, let's say, Jonah, right? Jesus here is affirming uh, the very reality, the very literal reality of the book of Jonah. It's, it's a soft type of apologetics. Well, if Jesus recognized that Jonah was three days in the belly of the sea monster and he's God, then how could it just be a made-up story? So you have kind of a soft apologetic, if you will, for the uh, literal reality of Jonah and his being three days in the belly of a very large fish, here referred to as a sea monster. And so, in other words, if someone amongst themselves, which, by the way, those scribes would have uh, ascribed to, they would have affirmed the, the, the nature of Jonah's story as being a real story, not just a made-up story. They would have affirmed that. And so Jesus is essentially putting them in a place where if you aren't willing to affirm the literalness of Jonah's story, then you're going to also have to not affirm the literalness of Jesus' resurrection because that's exactly what Jesus is referring to here in his first reply to these scribes with regard to their request. Show us a sign, and he's basically saying, no sign. No sign, except, except the sign of Jonah. In the same way that Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the sea monster, and we see right here in verse 40, so will, and notice he goes back to this statement that he's made repeatedly of himself, so will the Son of Man, Jesus making reference to himself as being this individual. We, we looked at Daniel 7. We looked at the fact that the, the Jewish nation was anticipating one like the Son of Man. Here he's saying, so will the Son of Man. And remember, he, the, the Son of Man has authority over what? The Sabbath. He just previously in chapter 12 had gone to this issue that that he is the Son of Man, has authority over the Sabbath. No sign except this one. In the same way that Jonah was three days in the belly of the sea monster, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. Which, obviously, as we know, uh, they probably weren't intuitive enough to pick up the fact that Jesus is referring to his death, burial, and in his burial, that he will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth in his burial. They're not privy to the fact that that's what he's making reference to. As a matter of fact, what do we see Jesus, uh, in essence, uh, saying about these individuals? He answered them this way, an evil and adulterous generation craves for what? Signs. Teacher, Everything you've done heretofore, that, that's not going to equate to what would mount to the signs of the Messiah. You need to show us something even greater than that. Now, we don't have time this morning, obviously, for obvious reasons. But if you go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, we see there again the scribes and the Pharisees asking Jesus for a sign. And on that occasion, they were asking very specifically for a heavenly sign more than likely because they knew that there was going to be some celestial disturbances that were equated with the Son of Man the Messiah, and his coming, and somehow where is that going to fit in? And so we see them asking Jesus a little bit later for more of a heavenly sign, and perhaps that was intended in what they were saying here as well. Matthew just doesn't record it that way. So Matthew uh, records the fact of how Jesus 
um, views these scribes, these Pharisees, that their idolatry, their unbiblical traditions, the hardness of their heart, just to name a few, um, equated them as being an evil, and then their spiritual adultery of putting the traditions of man over the word of God as being an evil and adulterous generation, and here they are craving more signs. Having rejected the signs of the Messiah already, craving more signs, but again, not really craving signs, but craving what? Craving the approval of the crowd and trying to denigrate Jesus in the eyes of all the beholders that were there on that particular day. This is what you might call uh, in chess a brilliant move. It would be checkmate, right? Um, Jesus, unwilling to perform a sign, but willing to predict a sign. A big difference between the two. By predicting the yet future events of his glorious resurrection, which would be Jesus' final and greatest sign to the entire world of his messianic credentials and of his saving power. And I thought about this in the course of studying this and kind of started going down that path. You ever, you know how you do that, right? But I started thinking about post-resurrection sermons, like the very first one when Peter was preaching. And he kind of tells the story about what they did to Jesus, hung on the cross, and he was raised back to the... I'm thinking those, that Jewish audience right there more than likely would have been similar to the Jewish audience right here. They heard about the predictive sign. Not going to give you any more signs, but I'm going to tell you something that's coming. And so I have this interesting hunch that perhaps, and I haven't traced this one out completely, you, you know when like Peter preaches and it says, and 3,000 were added to their number that day. We're just like, wow, that's amazing. Well, some of these individuals had heard what Jesus said. News had spread about what Jesus had said. And on more than one occasion, Jesus said that he was going to be buried. And on the third day, he was going to rise again. And he did exactly that. And the apostles went about as... Uh, preachers of the gospel, including the reality that the sign of Jonah was met. So Jesus, in essence, uh, pulls off a, a glorious checkmate with regard to these scribes and Pharisees. Now in verse 42, verse 42, how about verse 41? In verse 41, I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus is going to continue using that narrative, that motif of Jonah. Notice how he does this. He said, The men of Nineveh will stand up against this generation, stand up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The, the simplest understanding here is that when God sent Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh, they listened. And they repented. Jesus, throughout the course of his ministry, has been preaching. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. They've repented not. And he says something greater than Jonah is here. They repented not. And then Jesus continues in that same theme in verse 42 now. And bringing up the example of the queen of the south. It says, he, he goes on to say, the queen of the south will rise up. Again, similar uh, theme of 
condemnation at the pending judgment at the end of the at the end of that age before the the second death and the lake of fire the queen of the south will rise up with this generation of the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here the the story of the queen of sheba is found in 1 kings 10 it tells of the, the story of how this very wealthy queen of the south traveled perhaps more than 1,200 miles on camel's backs to visit King Solomon for the express purpose of learning of his wisdom, God's wisdom, and of paying homage to him. And so again, Jesus points out the simple fact that here you have this pagan Gentile woman who made a long, grueling trip all the way across the Arabian desert to simply hear the wisdom of Solomon, yet God sends his Messiah to his very chosen people, and they won't even hardly lift a finger to hear him out. And as such, they will, in that day of judgment, rise up and bring, be a part of the, the cascading of the voice of many uh, that would lead to their condemnation because of their rejection of their king, namely the Son of Man, who was their promised Messiah. In light of all the overwhelming evidence, thousands upon thousands of miracles, instantaneous miracles, thousands upon thousands daily, they're still not interested in hearing the preaching of Jesus, still unwilling to repent, and willing to see the value that he has in his person and his wisdom. Now, there's one more that Jesus uh, compares them to. And this one is, a, is very enigmatic. This one's a very difficult three verses to get your head wrapped around. Let me just read it, and then I'll kind of give you my Occam's razor on this passage here. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, now keep in mind, what had Jesus just previously done this day? There was a demon-possessed man, and he had cast the demon out of this man. That's the one where they said he does his power by Satan. Okay, but we also know from previous encounters with Jesus, there were other demon-possessed people that he was casting demons out of. As a matter of fact, it might be fair to say, I don't know. I mean, many followed him, and he healed them what? All, right? It might be fair to say that as Jesus went throughout the region of Galilee, which is a very large and vast region, and the surrounding villages and towns, it might be fair to say that he was casting out every demon-possessed individual that he had an encounter with. You, it might be somewhat fair to say, though I can't prove it, that during Jesus' three years of public ministry, toward the end of his public ministry, there might not have been many in the entirety of Israel who were demon-possessed because of his great miraculous power and work. Keep that in mind. Jesus says, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way, and I think this last sentence here is the key to understanding what Jesus is doing with this, this whole piece. 
that is the way, so it's analogous, it will be with this evil generation. Now, he just told the scribes and the Pharisees that they were an evil and wicked generation craving for more signs. They'd already rejected the signs of the Messiah and made up their, this, this idea of, of craving for more, something greater, something more spectacular. That is the way it will be also with this evil generation. So there's something about this conversation, the understanding that Jesus is talking about here with this, the casting out of an unclean spirit from a man that connects with this evil and unbelieving generation. Um, Jesus is saying this with regard to his own people. It seems with regard to the nation of Israel. He is now cast out, as I mentioned, uh, countless unclean spirits throughout the nation and throughout the people of Israel. Yet having done all of that, the majority of Israel and now the majority of its spiritual leaders, the experts in the law, the scribes, they have not repented. They did not fill the void that was left with acceptance of Jesus through faith and repentance. So Jesus has been casting out unclean spirits throughout many a man throughout the nation. And it wanders aimlessly. I'm not even going to try to get into waterless places because that's not necessary to the understanding of what's happened. These spirits are just, these demonic spirits are just out and about looking for a new person to inhabit. <clears throat> then it says, I will return to my house, the previous house, the previous individual from whom he was cast out, that unclean spirit was. And when he shows up, he finds it unoccupied. Jesus has been going throughout the nation and he has been removing unclean spirits throughout the nation of Israel and rather than repenting and replacing what was there with faith and repentance in Christ Jesus, they just swept themselves clean with their rabbinic traditions and had their, their, their religious life put back in order <clears throat> but yet still unoccupied with the true knowledge of <clears throat> the only one and living, true living God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so then it comes back with other spirits more wicked. Are there levels of wickedness amongst the demonic spirits? Perhaps. And then they go back into the individual whom Jesus originally cast them out from. And because they did not repent and come to faith in Christ, it was unoccupied. It was swept. It was put in order. All they needed to do was put their faith in Christ, repent and believe. But they would not. They reject the signs of the true Messiah, claiming to demand more. And so the last state of that man, the last state of that nation, of those who, who had interaction with Christ and his ministry, the last state will be worse than the first. You see, that's the way it's going to be with this evil and adulterous generation. Something way greater and Solomon is here. A queen traveled all the way across the desert to, to show its preciousness and its true value and worth. You guys won't even do that, and your Messiah is right here. Jonah, three days in the belly of the great fish, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. And guess what? When, when Jonah preached, what did that nation of Gentiles do? 
they repented. Here you have this nation that Jesus has gone through, and he's in essence swept out all the unclean evil spirits and made way for the, the coming of the Lord. And this gospel has been preached. No repentance. They don't treasure it as being, value, as, as being of great value. And so Jesus is saying that you guys are going to be like this person right here. These unclean spirits are going to come back on you. And if you just take a, a glance at the nation of Israel and the Jewish nation for over the last 2,000 years, what do we see? We almost see the predictive prophecy of what Jesus said right here in Matthew 12, 43 through 45 has come to reality. The majority of the nation of Israel is made up of atheists today. Sure, there's, there's, uh, there's Orthodox Jews there. They still go to the Wailing Wall. They still study the Torah. They're still looking for their Messiah. That's a small number, but it's going to be at least over 144,000 of them. God keeps a remnant. We'll get there sometime later. But that's what Jesus is saying about this nation. And what's interesting in the context, and this is my last point, and we'll, get, we'll go eat some food. In the book of Matthew, when you get to chapter 13, it begins the teachings of Christ in the parables. He starts speaking to them in parables so that they do not understand what he is saying purposely. You get to 15, you have a great feeding. You get to 16 or 17, is it? You, you get to the feeding of, the, of a large Jewish audience, and then you get to the feeding of a large Gentile audience. You've got the Syrophoenician woman, I think it's in chapter 17. You see clear movement of Christ, as, as we saw earlier from Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. The Messiah is going to proclaim a gospel message to the Gentiles, and their hope will be in him. He came to his own, and his own received him not. John, chapter 1. Jesus is going to be taking his message more directly, not exclusively, but more directly to the Jew first and also to the Gentile but to the Gentiles. And that's the way I see this passage. Now, how does that apply to us? Let me tell you, listen, you sit in a very privileged position, very privileged position. And let me just, let me tell you, I don't, I'm, I'm under the assumption every single person here has repented and come to faith in Jesus Christ. But I could be wrong. Be a, perhaps a very wrong assumption. Actions speak louder than words. What does the what does the activity of your life say about your confession? Are you truly following Christ? Well, let me tell you, whenever Jonah showed up and preached to the Ninevites, they repented. The queen of the south, she just heard of the wisdom of Solomon. She traveled over a thousand miles on a camelback to come hear the wisdom of God through that man and paid great homage. We have the privilege of having the word of God before us in our own written language opened up every week after week after week after week. If you've yet to submit your heart and your soul to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you've not repented, make today the day you do that. Be the wisest thing you've ever done, ever. Because the wisdom of God came in the flesh and Jesus himself presented a living gospel for then and for all times. And God's proof was what? What did Paul say God's proof was? Was that he was re the resurrection from the dead. The sign of who? sign of Jonah, the predictive sign. That he, they, they were looking for a sign, no sign, but, but Jonah. Three day, just like Jonah, I'm going to be in the, in the earth three days and nights, and I'm coming up, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've yet to put your faith in Christ, do that today. Just come talk to me.
I'll lead you in a great conversation of how to do that. If you have done that, let a passage like this one cause you to live in such a way that your light shines brighter than it's ever shown before. People need the Lord. Whether it's here or in Jordan or wherever it may be, people need the Lord. Your life, your voice, your testimony might be one of the only ones that somebody might see this Christmas, Christ-focused season when they're looking for hope. You be that one.